Welcome to the Startup Field Guide, an unusual ventures podcast where we learn from the successful startup leaders of today how their companies truly found product market fit. I'm your host, Sandhya, and in every episode, I'll dive into a different aspect of early stage company building with our guests. Let's go. Our guest today is the wicked smart Waylon Tang. Say hello, Way. Hey, everyone. So I'm lucky to call away my partner at Unusual Ventures, where he leads our seed investments in security, machine learning, and Web3 infrastructure startups. But before joining the dark side, Wei was the co-founder of Stackrox. And Stackrox, if you haven't heard of it, was born in about 2015 and actually became one of the first startups in the container security world to offer a Kubernetes native solution. And if you, you know, I'm not familiar with Kubernetes, that was also a, you know, a very fast growing movement in the DevOps uh, industry at the time. And more recently, in 2021, Stackrox was acquired by Red Hat for hundreds of millions of dollars. I'm not allowed to give you an exact number. <laughs> All right, Ray, how are you doing today? I'm doing well today, Sandhya. Thanks for having me on to chat about the story of Stackrox. Of course, my pleasure. Um, so, Ray, you you know have had an amazing career. You were a part of like really interesting technology companies like Splunk, AWS. And you were even the head of product at a startup before you uh, ended up at Stackrock. So what, what drew you to kind of take that leap to becoming the founder of a startup and, and why Stackrocks in particular? I've been really passionate about infrastructure for a really long time and you know, had worked in and around you know, some great companies that were really innovating at that layer of the stack, like you mentioned, Sandhya. And kind of grew up, you know, around this emergence of, you know, cloud first and cloud native infrastructure, you know, uh, nearly a decade ago. And really, you know, got excited about the problems it could solve for businesses. I mean, really around powering a new generation of modern applications and helping, you know, companies and teams thinking, you know, about how to scale their products in a way they really hadn't, you know, needed to before. And so, um, you know, having worked in and around this problem space... I'd done stuff in infrastructure, I'd done stuff in security, and in some ways, you know, the space in which Stackrocks went after around, you know, container security and Kubernetes security was at this, like, perfect intersection for me in terms of what I had done previously. And so it kind of teed me up to really understand the problem deeply, you know, and having, you know, worked in and around the space for quite some time, I felt like I was uniquely qualified to go tackle it. And so for me, like... The origination of Stackrocks and the opportunity to help shape this new category was what really, you know, was what I found really compelling in terms of wanting, you know, to be an early stage founder and builder um, and start something from the ground up. And what was that experience like? Like, you know, even if your role is similar, right? So before Stackrocks, you were at CoreOS, where you were also the head of product. What is the difference when you actually are the founder of the company uh, versus an executive? Is there like a tangible difference in like how you feel day to day, what conviction you need, how stressed out you are? Like paint us a picture for all the aspiring founders here. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's definitely, you know, hugely meaningful differences in being 
you know, an executive or an early leader or senior member of the team versus being a founder. I mean, I think for one, like as a founder, you know, you, I think you, you, you think a lot about the responsibility that you owe, you know, to the people who have joined you on the journey. And from a company standpoint, you end up wearing a ton of different hats. I mean, really, you end up doing whatever it takes at any given point in time, you know, to help the company succeed or move forward. And so even though I was sort of wearing the product hat in the company, I mean, I was involved in, you know, selling, I was involved in recruiting, you know, and, and I mean, those are all key functions that I think you take on as a founder. Um, and, you know, you, 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 at the same time, you have, I think, a moral authority in terms of what you bring to the company in terms of vision and leadership, you know, that is not exactly the same as if you're, uh, an early executive or, you know, um, or if I had just been wearing the same sort of product leader hat I had worn previously. Um, but certainly, you know, I, I thought a lot about my, my obligations to the team and my, you know, the investors we partnered with and, you know, folks in terms, you know, uh, you know, all the relevant folks in terms of, you know, what was necessary at, you know, any given t- you know, point in time beyond my product role, you know, to, to make the company succeed. Makes sense. Um, So one of the themes we explore in this uh, podcast in every episode is this idea of product market fit, right? Because it's just, um, you know, you can, there's a lot of other things that you can kind of simplify and learn on your own, like how to hire, how to raise money, uh, maybe even, you know, how to do good customer discovery. But um, almost every founder still struggles to answer the question, like, do we truly have product market fit? What does it mean? What does it feel like to have product market fit? Is it, you know, I have some revenue, I have some active users, like, what is it? Um, so would love to just dive into that story for Stackrox. You know, what was the product market fit journey? Where did you start and and what was you know what was eventually kind of the moment the aha moment where you as a founding team said yes I think we have found product market fit. Yeah, for Stackrocks, the journey to product market fit was more of a winding one, to be honest, and, and in some ways it was somewhat circuitous. You know, to give you a sense for you know how we got to product market fit, I think there were a couple sort of key milestones you know a- a- along that path. You know, and, and when we were first starting out, for one, um, the market was, was still very early. Uh, you know, people did not necessarily, they had not necessarily woken up to the category of container security or, you know, needing, you know, security for cloud native applications, you know, in an sort of urgent, critical way. Um, and so when, when, in the early days when we were building, you know, we initially, you know, targeted security teams as sort of the, the core persona that we were looking to serve. That was also the type of, you know, person that a lot of our network was built around. So if you looked at, you know, um, you know, the circles in which, you know, myself and my co-founders had operated in previously, a lot of it was around infrastructure security folks, chief information security officers, people like that. And so we, we talked to a lot of them and, and we started shaping our product around uh, runtime security for containers, which means like, you know, you are looking at activity of what's happening when containerized applications are running, they're, you know, running, they're deployed in the environment, you know, you're looking to detect potential threats or, you know, malicious activity or 
things like that. Um, and as we started to build out the product, you know, we, we launched it, we engaged with early design partners, you know, we got some, some traction, but it wasn't the type of traction where you really felt pulled, you know, to, uh, you know, these users, like, you know, in some ways, like we would, our engagement was built around, you know, convincing them why they needed this type of product, or they needed to think about this space of problems that they weren't necessarily themselves initiating as an urgent or critical pain point. And so I think that was an early indicator to us that we had not hit the mark in terms of product market fit. Um, and I think, you know, as we dug in more, you'd find that even for customers that had been doing uh, proof of concepts or had deployed us, you know, they were not super engaged or using uh, our product in a, you know, in a very meaningful way. That is, I think, such an important point you're making because often I'll talk to founders who who um, have that kind of early traction, right? Where they have someone who's signed up for a design partner program. They have somebody who's using the software in production. At that point, like, how would you think about what does great engagement feel like versus where do you're like, well, we have traction, but it's not product market fit. Like we, this particular customer does not want our product badly. Uh, so how would you like, you know, what would be your advice to founders to like differentiate between those two where both customers are technically using your product and they have signed up to be early design partners? How do you tell the difference between the two situations? It's a good question. I think there are a couple of different ways. You know, so someone who is really engaged and hands-on with your product and deriving value will actually push you and take you in directions that you hadn't necessarily thought about. Like, I think early champions will often give you feedback. You know, they'll tell you what's going well, what what's missing, um, because they you know they see value in your product and they're looking to get you know get more out of it and. You know, I think those are some indications that you really hit on a pain point that your product helps solve, as opposed to you know when it feels like you know you have to pull some of the feedback out of them, or you have you know, or, or or you you know, you chat with them and you know you get a sense for what they thought of a particular feature or things like that. I mean, you know, if they can't speak to the details, if they can't tell you what's good and what's bad, then it's really clear that they haven't you know, really engage with your product in a way that you would want them to. Um, and so to, to us, even though we had some, you know, we had some early um, financial services companies, we had some media and entertainment companies that were using us. And these were generally, I mean, good, you know, early lighthouse logos. You know, when you took this, when, when I took a step back and, you know, looked at it and, and, you know, took stock of the bigger picture, because sometimes, you know, day to day, you're, you're just running and your head's down and, and you don't, you know, kind of um, step back a bit. You know, I really noticed that, well, one is a lot of these, um, a lot of these early design partners that we got engaged with were through warm intros. There were people in our network. You know, oftentimes you talk to these types of organizations or the decision makers and they'd nod their head, you know, but would they be able to really articulate kind of the problems or pain points or needs that they had? That's where... There was definitely, I think, a gap in terms of you know, um, you know, them clearly expressing a you know important pain point to the you know to them, um, and so, and, and then you had this issue around kind of you know meaningful engagement and feedback and things like that. 
And so that really caused you know, me and the team to you know, reconsider our approach. And you know, rather than continue pushing down this path, you know, where we could, you know, I think likely have gotten to, you know, several million in ARR, let's say, you know, I think long term, we didn't necessarily, f you know, feel we were aligned with this market tailwind, because, you know, cloud native applications and architectures were really taking off, you know, um, platforms like Kubernetes, which, you know, allowed people to build, you know, in these newer, more modern ways for, you know, scalability and, you know, in a more declarative way and things like that, um, we're seeing huge adoption. And so at the same time, it was very obvious to see externally, there was this huge market uptake in the um, sort of app, you know, types of apps that people were building. And yet we did not see like a commensurate, you know, um, hockey stick in terms of security. So to us, that was also an indicator that something was not necessarily aligned with, you know, the type of product that the market wanted or needed. Um, and so when we started, you know, engaging with more folks, you know, what we did is we actually started talking to people who were the adopters of Kubernetes and those types of platforms. And what was interesting there is that was actually a different persona. Like these were DevOps people. These were, you know, uh, engineering teams or platform teams who were sort of laying the foundation for how companies were thinking about building, app, you know, uh, apps in a new way. And when we talked to them, you know, they actually had a lot to say about security. It was just very different from where we had focused because we had been engaged with the security persona. And so when we talked to DevOps teams and platform teams, they actually highlighted a completely different use case as the starting point for security. And what they pointed out is most of them wanted to simply start by scanning their container images for vulnerabilities. And it made a lot of sense that those people would bring that up because you know, that's in the stage where you're building your, you're building your application. That's a developer or DevOps user um, and what struck us was that they were already starting to think about security. Um, and so we quickly, you know, after that, we, we, we started to really plan out, well, what would a shift, potential shift in moving to addressing a use case like that and that type of persona look like? And it was very different. It was effectively like almost the polar opposite of where we had started. And I think those discussions definitely, you know, there was good and bad to it. I think that people were somewhat relieved in terms of, you know, addressing almost like, you know, the, the unanswered question hanging in the air sometimes. It's like we're not feeling this like huge traction or pull. At the same time, like there's a lot of inertia. I mean, like, you know, we, we had, you know, maybe, um, you know, 15 to 20 people on the team by then. They had invested you know, a lot of time and energy in, t in terms of building out the existing product. And I do think that it's, it's, it's actually easy for a company to not make the hard decision to move away from all that it's invested early on. But from my perspective, it was somewhat of a sunk cost, which is you have to think about going forward what made the most sense for the business from a product standpoint. And so for me... Uh, I quickly shifted my focus and energy and priorities to enabling us to um, 
you know, get a new product offering out there that was focused on this different persona, different part of the life cycle. And so what that looked like is, you know, we pulled together a, a tiger team of about three to four engineers out of, you know, maybe the dozen or so that we had at, at that time, put them on this new project. We wanted to iterate really quickly, you know, and get something out into the market. Uh, and we had existing customers for, you know, the product. And, and we thought about how we could, you know, we spoke to them, we engaged with them, we explained, you know, very openly and transparently why we were shifting this product strategy to, you know, add on and, all, you know, really focus on a different part of the cloud native application lifecycle. Um, and so, so we were able to deliver that new product in the span of about six months and but there were there were still a lot. It was very rough around the edges. It was, it was also also it, you know caused different pain for for different people for some period of time. Like for instance, you know we needed that new product to have standalone value, and so it had its own UI. And so suddenly we had two separate products that had to be deployed separately with two different UIs, and customers were not you know definitely not thrilled about that. Um, you know we had to train the field, uh, you know, I mean, a, a small field, but, you know, had to train sales force on, you know, how to sell, you know, these different products and the different use cases that they could align um, around. And so, you know, there's definitely a period where it, it was very difficult managing that product transition. But in retrospect, it was absolutely the right move for the company. Um, you know, as soon as we, you know, put out that new product, it wasn't that it was, you know, perfectly on target for what people necessarily were looking for. But at the same time, it was still a, a relatively early market. It was wide open and it was good enough where we started to get a lot of users um, trying it out, you know, adopting it uh, and then giving us feedback on how we could build it out over time. Got it. So you're getting much more engagement from the early adopters of like the DevOps focused product. So even though it wasn't that like you had, you know, an order of magnitude more adoption yet, the quality of that early adoption was just, you know, ob objectively felt much better. Yeah, you could, you could even see it in the reaction of people's eyes and almost emotions, like when you talk to them or demo the product. You know, I think in the case of the new product, you know, people would get really excited and they'd be like, okay, I can totally see how this fits in and, and you know, solves a problem for us. Or can I try this right away? Can, you know, can I get my hands on it now or today? Versus, you know, in the earlier conversations around our initial product, people would nod their heads like, you know, they weren't disagreeing with you. I mean, it's not that there was anything conceptually you know, wrong with what we were proposing or what we had built, but it just, you know, it just didn't address a pain point that they um, identified with. Right. I think that to me is probably like the one big kind of takeaway. If you want to put something on a t-shirt, it's the question like, when can I get my hands on this? Right. That's when you know you have something that someone is really excited about, as opposed to if you ask them, oh, would you be willing to be a design partner? And they're like, OK, sure. Yeah, I'll give you some feedback, which is completely different from, oh, is this already live? Can I use it? When can I get my hands on it? Right. So I think that qualitative difference is so huge. 
Um, could you just for the you know sake of kind of uh, having more uh, clarity, could you help us understand like what the timeline was? So you know like how many how much how many years into starting the company did you guys decide actually no we need to pivot? And then you said in about six months you know you had the second product ready to go. So uh, so what were some of the metrics after you launched that second product? Yeah, so um you know Stackbox was you know formally founded at the end of 2014 and really kind of got off the ground in 2015. I joined a bit later, I joined in 2016 when the team was still very small, just a, a few engineers. And you know we we launched the product in, you know, 2017 and I would say after about six months, you know, that was when we really had a good gauge on, you know, um, interest and, you know, the, these issues around engagement. And so it was around late 2017 that we decided to shift our product strategy and, you know, uh, start working on this new product, which we released uh, in uh, around mid-2018. And then I would say, like, because of that just difference in terms of where the market was and, and the adoption and interest, you know, we uh, hit, you know, a million in ARR within a year after uh, releasing the, the, the newer product. And so it, it was definitely, you know, uh, very obvious, even in the metrics, like in terms of the pipeline and the you know, types of customers we were engaged with and things like that, going from 2017, where we launched this initial product and, you know, uh, it, you know, didn't really see the uptake that we were hoping for versus, you know, the in 2018 after releasing the new product, you know, and seeing a lot of interest. And, and I think in addition to excitement and engagement, it was just clear that with the newer product, many, many more people, you know, were, you know, looking, uh, you know, looking to engage with us, looking to, you know, try out the product and, you know, things like that, whether it was like inbound requests, whether it was like demo requests, whether it was at, you know, conferences and, you know, trade shows, like, and, and things like that. So, um, you know, I think part of it was just, you know, the size of, you know, the market, you know, that was interested in one product versus the other, because in, you know, in, in the initial case with the, with our first product, even though, you know, here and there, there may be people who, who were interested or excited, uh, it was much, much fewer. Got it. So it took about like three years to like find the product market fit or, or rather like launch the product that would give you product market fit. But then, you know, within a year, you got to the million ARR benchmark, which I think is kind of like what, what top quartile startups all shoot for, like getting to a million in ARR, like within 12 months of GA launch is considered, you know, uh, I would say kind of like the minimum indicator that you are really on to something. But I think what is so important to remember is that like the path leading to that moment is like many years of ups and downs and hard work and kind of just have to persist through that. What what was the what was kind of the mood in the founding team like? Like did things get easier once you, you know, had that million in ARR? Um you know th things definitely felt more upbeat and optimistic. I think that the first few years were certainly difficult, you know, in terms of, you know, I think everyone was working really hard. Everyone had put a lot of time and energy into, um, you know, wanting to make the, the company successful and just not, you know, feeling like we could make a lot of forward progress. You know, it, it was also difficult 
period early on because, you know, uh, we had a leadership transition and our initial CEO moved on, you know, it just wasn't the right fit and we needed a different skill set to drive the company forward. And that also had an impact on the team. You know, so I think there was definitely this period, you know, in early 2018, I would say, when all of these things sort of came to a head, like we were still transitioning the product and you know, there's some, there are some people on the team, including engineers who, you know, I think we're feeling really down about that. Like, you know, and also there was a lot of uncertainty overhanging the company, which is how is this new product strategy going to work out and things like that. At the same time, I think having, you know, a found, you know, one of the co-founders depart is also, you know, uh, definitely has an impact, you know, on, uh, you know, the team. I mean, you know, we were small enough where everyone still knows everyone and you know, we work closely together. And so that, that definitely had um, implications too. And so I think managing that transition in the first six months of 2018 were probably the most precarious for, for the company in that period where, um, you know, the team composition had changed as well as we were undergoing this, you know, uh, really, I would say drastic shift in, in product strategy. And how t- how did you define product strategy? I think it's you know fairly um, challenging in these like really early days when you're still thinking about like what's the MVP. You're in the middle of a pivot. How how did you think about like uh, you know defining product strategy, driving clarity for the org on like what matters and and what to build? Yeah, I I think that um, especially when it comes to a transition like that, Sandy, I think. It is super important, you know, to um, you know reassure the team that there is a plan, that there is you know something concrete that they can you know latch onto in terms of where the company is going. And and I think that people, you know, un, you know, most of the team, you know, was relatively senior, and I think that they were very you know mature about you know, the, the openness and communication, which was like, hey, the, the first product really didn't work, you know, and I think people understood that and appreciated the humility. But then the question always comes like, well, well, then what? Like, what's next? Like, what's the plan? And so there, I think, you know, framing the assumptions were really important. I think in retrospect, what we had missed with the first product is like, we didn't recognize that this shift in application architecture, you know, to the cloud native and microservices and containers and Kubernetes and things like that was prompting, you know, organizations and companies to think about who handles security and how that's handled differently from how it was before. And so I think, you know, that was a core assumption in the product strategy around shifting from security people to DevOps as the core persona and then it's not just, you know, in terms of communication to the team, if that's a core assumption, you know, what we spent a lot of time doing was not just, you know, uh, framing that in a vacuum. I mean, we had had a lot of conversations, you know, once we decided things were not working as we had hoped. And so sharing that data, sharing the feedback, you know, with the team as a whole, I think was very helpful. And then, you know, once we... I think tying it to product deliverables and milestones is also really important in the sense that we said, okay, well, we need to focus on this type of persona, this part of the life cycle, something around this use case. 
like here's how we're going to scope MVP. And you know how how I thought about it was, you know, here you know, here's a, a very well defined, you know, set of user stories. Here's a set of requirements. Like, you know, like a, I think anyone who's kind of wearing the PM hat would think about it from an execution standpoint. Um, here's something that we would like to go target, you know, maybe a bit ambitiously, but that we want to deliver in, you know, three to six months in terms of like going from prototyping to beta to, you know, actual launch. Um, and that gave the team a frame of reference to rally around. They could suddenly give input like, okay, I think this is doable. Here's what makes sense. Here's, here's like the technical implementation and back end front end that will be necessary and here's what's too much and you know so so I think like you know putting something more concrete and tangible out there where people you know see it's not just okay we're going to shift product strategy it's like we're shifting shift product strategy and here's what the initial new product offering would look like here here's who it's for things like that that was that was really critical you know, to getting, I think, buy-in and support from the entire team. Makes sense. And I uh, know Stackrox also was open source, uh, and that was a critical part of, you know, your product and go-to-market strategy. How, how did you internally as a team think about open source? Were you open source like from day zero? Did you do it later? Could you share more about just, you know, A, how Stackrox did it? And then B, like given so many founders today are starting companies alongside open source projects, like what would be your more generalized advice for them? Yeah, we were, uh, we were not open source from the beginning, especially around the initial product, which was more focused on security um, users. When it came to the newer product, uh, we were not open source from the beginning either, but we quickly, you know, uh, evaluated whether it made sense and determined it did. And, and the reason for that was, you know, we recognized that we were targeting, you know, DevOps users for whom, you know, open source is, you know, uh, certainly, you know, a value, you know, uh, a valuable way of, you know, getting to, either kick the tires or start using uh, products early on, you know, I think that really resonated with kind of the model that they were looking for. I would also say a big factor in our decision to go open source was that a lot of our immediate ecosystem was built around uh, that model. So if you looked at you know, Kubernetes and the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, um, there was this vibrant, you know, there has been this vibrant open source based community that was really taking off. And so I think in some respects, um, you know, open source was almost table stakes by the time we uh, started to think about the newer product. Uh, and then I also say that the community really values, you know, um, you know uh, open source in, 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 to the extent that people can collaborate and build on it and, you know, continue to take things forward, you know, as a, as a way of, you know, thinking about implementing newer standards. And so for us, we really wanted to be the new standard for, you know, certain parts of cloud native security and being viewed as a good citizen was also really important, you know, in terms of giving back to that community that we wanted to, to work with. Makes sense. And so if I was a engineer today with like a great open source project, which has some traction and considering, okay, should I 
start a company? Like, how, how what were some what would be some of the like questions that I should think about as a potential founder? And um, and you know, obviously, I should reach out to you for a personal one-on-one <laughs> session. But but other than that, like, what, what what would I think about? Yeah, you know, and 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 I I love chatting about this type of thing, you know, early on, because I think it can for, form, you know, such a, it can be such a pivotal decision, you know, in the early days in terms of, you know, how you're looking to build a company. Um, I, I would say, you know, there's definitely uh, some key considerations in terms of thinking about, you know, why open source? Um, you know, I, I would certainly say, you know, think about, you know, who are your users and what do they expect and how do they like to, you know, onboard to new products. I mean, I would say for many developer-focused uh, products, you know, open source is a tried and true way for what people are looking to do. I think the other is also, you know, if you're looking to, you know, put out a product that is meant to be extensible and you want to foster a community around it, then open source is a great way to do that because you'll get, you know, uh, you know contributors and you get people who are collectively, you know, working with you to solve the problem that you're, you know, uh, looking to address, you know, in, in, in a bigger way. And they'll take, you know, you in directions that maybe you hadn't necessarily thought of, which is like, su- which is super valuable. The, the third, I think, is like, think about what part of the stack you're building for. I think there's definitely certain parts of the stack where, you know, if it's sort of like a, if there's standardization that's expected to be, ha- you know, expected to happen, then open source is critical because, you know, whether it comes to, you know, governance or like community focus, like things being open are going to be, you know, almost essential to the audience that uh, is looking to adopt technologies in that particular part of the stack. And so I think whether you look at infrastructure or, uh, you know, in, in data or, you know, uh, many others, you know, security, many other spaces, uh, open source has become critical where, you know, people are looking to establish a standard, you know, in terms of how, uh, something works within the stack. So that, that's what I would say. And you saw the same thing with Kubernetes. Like it wasn't one company that uh, maybe, you know, it, it originated at Google, but effectively, you know, uh, started to get uh, influenced by the entire community. And, and that really had a huge impact on its trajectory. Makes sense. Well, this has been so awesome having you on the show away. I know you have like a packed day full of founder pitches to get to. So thank you so much for carving out time today to chat about Stack Rocks. I always have such a lovely time and we could go on for hours, but we'll wrap up for today. Uh, thank you again so much for being uh, you know, an early guest on the Unusual Startup Field Guide. Thanks so much, Sandhya. Great chatting about um, story of Stack Rocks, and you know, uh, would love to chat with any founders who are listening about uh, all things infrastructure, software related. Uh, and you know, we are going to be putting out a open source playbook in the next couple months, so please be on the lookout for that. Um, you know, I think uh, there, there's a lot uh, to be built and talked about, you know, in that space. So, uh, would love to engage with early stage builders. At Unusual Ventures, we manage over a billion dollars focused on seed investments in enterprise and consumer software, supporting early-stage founders from day zero. With experience investing in and building iconic companies like Carter, Snowflake, Okta, MongoDB, Arctic Wolf, and more, our expert team of operators works right alongside you 
on everything from recruiting to sales to improve your odds of finding product market fit. To learn more, visit unusual.vc. You've been listening to the Startup Field Guide with Sankhya, an Unusual Ventures podcast. Stay connected with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you like what you heard, please rate our show and help us reach more aspiring founders with lessons on how to find product market fit. Thanks for listening. Until next time.